Good morning again. If you are just tuning in with us, my name is Sam McLaughlin, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you are a guest with us, we're especially glad that you're here. We want to make sure that you saw the link to our Friday newsletter in our post. That's the best way to learn about our church. And if you sign up for that newsletter, it gives me your contact information, and I would love the chance to reach out to you. On Ash Wednesday, we began our current sermon series called Graves into Gardens, and I'm intentionally taking us back through where we've been because it's important to understand our journey. The title of this series comes from a contemporary worship song, and we have been claiming its words that we serve a God who turns mourning into dancing, who gives beauty for ashes, who somehow takes our shame and turns it into glory. On Ash Wednesday, we looked at that first garden that God created and the story of Adam and Eve. And through that story, we have claimed two things that have sort of framed our Lenten journey. They are our lens in which we are viewing this season. The first claim is that God created us and called us good. We begin in a place of inherent goodness. So often we think we begin in a bad place or a, a place of evil, but we are inherently good. The second claim is that God created Adam and Eve to live a life without shame. And so God intends for us to find and hold on to a life without shame. Over these last few weeks, we have journeyed even closer with Jesus as he is making his way to Jerusalem. In the wilderness, we saw that he was tempted and tested by the devil, but he fought off these tests by, the, by using the word of God, by filling his mind with scripture. And so we too are invited to hunger after the word of God, to allow it to nourish us and fuel us in the wilderness of life. We heard him prepare his disciples for his death and for their deaths, for the physical or metaphorical ways that they would have to die to themselves in order to join him for the sake of the gospel. Jesus tells us that suffering is a part of this journey. We looked at a story about Pharisees and scribes bringing a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, asking should, should she be stoned to death. And we talked about this theology of sin presented to us from, from Barbara Brown Taylor. Sometimes there's these extremes that we go to, full fault theology, everything is our fault, we should pay for our sin. The other extreme being no fault theology, we are simply products of our past. But truthfully, we need something that lies in the middle because through that story, we see that Jesus does want us to be convicted by our sin. He wants us to change our behavior because of, by, by confronting our sin. But Jesus does not seek to condemn us, to punish us. He wants us to go on and live a freed life. Last week, we looked at pieces of John chapter 11, where Lazarus dies and Mary and Martha offer their lament to Jesus. We stopped there in the text, even though we knew that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, we stopped at the weeping because we want to honor that sometimes we look out in our lives and we don't see gardens. All we see are tombs and treachery. Today, we are drawing even nearer to Jesus as he enters the final week of his life. Contextually, this story comes almost immediately after last week's. Following 
Lazarus's resurrection, many of the Jews who had come with Mary to the tomb. Remember, we heard that in last week's text. There were Jews who came to the tomb with Mary, and many of them who saw what Jesus did believed in him. But others ran to the Pharisees and told them what had taken place. And so there's this part in the text between last week's story and the beginning of this week's story where the chief priests and the scribes call a council and they're panicked. They're asking, what are we going to do about this man, Jesus? If we let him go, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they will destroy our holy place and our nation. So it was from that point that they decided they were gonna put Jesus to death. In other words, it was Jesus's act of raising Lazarus from the dead that put the events of his death into motion. Now we read that Jesus retreated to a town near the wilderness, but as the Passover drew near, he like other faithful Jews would be journeying to Jerusalem. But first, Six days before the Passover, on Saturday, Jesus returned to Bethany to the home of Lazarus and had a last supper with his friends. We're told that Martha served and Lazarus reclined at the table with Jesus and Mary, the very same Mary who last week threw herself on the ground at Jesus' feet, offering her lament, gets back down on the ground at his feet. Only this time, she pulls out this expensive perfume, she anoints Jesus' feet, and she wipes them with her hair. Can you see this intimate and vulnerable moment? We're told the perfume was so strong, the aroma filled the entire house. Now Judas was there and he asked why this perfume wasn't sold and the money given to the poor, but really he didn't care about the poor. Judas was the disciple who kept the money purse, the common purse for the disciples, and he would steal from it because he was a thief. He tried to chastise Mary, but Jesus defended her. Leave her alone because Mary understood what was coming and her anointing was an outpouring of love and devotion for Jesus. Now, if we examine this text even closer, we see a number of similarities between the, this Last Supper with Lazarus and Mary and Martha and the Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples in John chapter 13. First, outside of this verse, the word for dinner is used exclusively in John to refer to the Last Supper in John 13. Second, the verb to wipe is the same verb used to describe Jesus wiping his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. And third, Judas is present in both situations. Here and in the 13th chapter, he is the disciple who is deceptive and unfaithful. And so what do these connections mean? Perhaps this meal with his friends was just as significant for Jesus as the one in John chapter 13. Perhaps it is possible that Jesus, Jesus had numerous last suppers with people he loved as he prepared for his death. See, if you pay attention to what any person does in the last days of their life, you will see what is most important to them. Often it is about relationships and family. 
And so Jesus has a teaching moment for us that we are to make spending time with our friends and family our top priority in life. Surely we have learned this lesson over this past year. The absence of our loved ones is something that we will try wholeheartedly to never take for granted again. Yet I found a connection that I really can't move away from. It's an even more intimate connection. See, in John chapter 13, the NIV translation of the text says this, one of my favorite lines from, from Scripture. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus now showed them the full extent of his love. In John chapter 13, the full extent of Jesus' love was not only being present with his loved ones, but getting up from the table and washing their feet, serving them and showing them that they should serve others in the same way. And here in this text, Mary is not only foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do, Mary is the picture of the full extent of love. Mary shows us the full extent of love as a disciple of Jesus. She shows us what it looks like to be a disciple. And so here are the things that we can see in this passage and learn from her. First is that the full extent of love as a disciple means being all in. In our story, we see the juxtaposition of a disciple who was greedy and out for himself and hoarding riches and a disciple who gave up her livelihood in order to serve someone else and offer this moment of devotion and love. This perfume was expensive. We're told 300 denarii, a year's wages. Some commentators say that Mary quite possibly gave up her dowry in order to buy this jar of perfume. That means that Mary essentially gave up her future. She gave up her security in a world in which she had very little status. And so Mary shows us that you push all the chips forward and bet on Jesus. You go all in on your life as a disciple. There is no playing it safe. There is no holding back because you have one wild and precious life to make a true kingdom difference. We can also guess that Mary gave, out of, gave to Jesus out of her gratitude for what Jesus had done for her and her family. And so we too must give of our time and our talents and our money and our livelihood because of our gratitude for the work of Jesus in our lives. I love that one commentator said this, the pervasive smell of the perfume signaled the extravagance of Mary's act. See, right before this text, as Jesus is approaching the tomb of Lazarus, Martha tries to stop him and warn him that the tomb stinks of death. But here, the stench of death that once lingered has been replaced by the fragrance of love and devotion. Does your life smell of love and devotion for Jesus? Are you praising Jesus through all of your senses for what he has done for you? Mary also shows us that the full extent of love as a disciple means practicing acceptance. 
Mary shows us that acceptance is a gift, a gift to yourself and a gift to other people. She not only gets what's happening, she accepts it. Jesus' response to this gift is one of gratitude to Mary, for Mary. She understood and honored what was coming for him, especially when his other disciples didn't seem to get it or even tried to resist it. Her gift was an act of healing for Jesus, an act of solidarity on his way to the cross. In this season of Lent, we have been examining ourselves honestly, seeking to confront our sin, to be convicted by it, to live a changed life. But ultimately, we must end up in the place of releasing this sin and accepting what has happened. Acceptance for a disciple means we give in to what we cannot control or change, what we have done to others or what others have done to us, not without lamenting and seeking forgiveness, but in an effort to move ourselves to the new and abundant life that Christ offer us. Acceptance for a disciple means we embrace our humanity and that of others, not loving others if they conform to who we wish them to be, but loving them for who they are. The third thing that Mary shows us is that the full extent of love as a disciple means getting involved in other people's mess. Indeed, it is ultimately that Mary gets on the ground with Jesus. This week, I was visiting with three of our church members, Carol Cartwright, Georgia Hobb, and Marsha Arnold, just out here in the parking lot catching up with one another. They were asking me about my pregnancy, and of course, we started to talk about the newborn phase. Carol told us a story about her daughter from those really early days of her life. She said one day her sweet and precious daughter had just thrown up all over her and all over herself. The doorbell rang and Carol went to the door anyways, even though she was covered in this mess, and her neighbor was standing there with a pecan pie. <laughs> Carol said when that neighbor saw her, she stepped right into the house. She took the baby and she cleaned up the baby so Carol could go and clean up herself. And Carol said it was from that moment on that we were best friends. And isn't it true that we all need those kind of people in our lives? People who show up in the mess and don't shy away from us, but join us in it. Walk us through it. See, Mary shows us that the extravagant acts for others that may feel embarrassing or awkward or uncomfortable, for those of us who give them or those who receive them, those acts those are the very acts that show us the full extent of Jesus's love. In their acts of foot washing, both Mary and Jesus invite us to throw off all formality and pretense and positions of power or status and get in the trenches with people. We are to be the bomb on the way to Golgotha. Last year, before COVID really hit in full force, uh, our beloved church member 
Barbara Potter passed away. Many of you knew her and loved her as much as I did. I really developed a friendship with her over these last years of her life and I visited her often at her place at Richland. It was about the middle of January that I had written to her about coming to visit her. But the day, when I checked in with her the day before, she did not respond to me, which was very unlike her. So I became worried. I ended up calling the front desk and asking them what was going on. They told me that she had been taken to the hospital, but that she was hoping to come home. And that was true. She had a day where she seemed well and ready to go, but it was that night that she suffered a series of stroke that, strokes that ultimately led to her death. When I couldn't get a hold of anybody call, trying to call her room, I just decided to race down to Vanderbilt and see if I could find her. I walked through the maze of the hospital. I knew which unit I was going to, but not really where it was. And I ran into this wonderful, friendly nurse who helped me to get to her unit. Before we walked onto the unit, I looked at her and I said, can you prepare me for what I might see? And so she offered me the, the worst and the best case scenarios. As we walked onto that unit, we talked to the nurse in charge and she didn't mean to, but she kind of flippantly said, oh, she's on hospice. So whoever wants to visit her can go into the room. So the nurse and I, the nurse who helped me get there and I exchanged glances and I knew that now I was gonna have to prepare myself to see her on the way to death. Now I can tell you as a pastor and maybe particularly as a young one, these are some of the hardest moments that we face. We want to show up and say the right words. We wanna do the right thing. And I admit that can give me a lot of anxiety and fear. We wanna give you the best in these last moments. So when I found her room, I stopped and took a deep breath before walking in. And when I did, I saw her sons, Tom and Lee and Joe surrounding her bed. And I don't know that I've ever seen people so tender, the way they looked at her, the way they anticipated her moves and fixed her bed as she was uncomfortable. We shared silence as we, we just looked at her, me having to take in the situation, uh, being the last one there. And I finally asked, can I pray over her? And something in my spirit told me to anoint her, to remember her baptism. And so I walked over to the sink in the room and I filled up a cup with water and we all got as close to her as we could. And I can still see her sweet face there as she was tinkering on the precipice between earthly and eternal life. And I dip my hand in that water and I place the sign of the cross on her forehead. And we spoke to her and we prayed over her. We told her that we were here, that she was not alone, that we loved her, that she was a wonderful person and mother and church member. I told her that she was claimed and loved as a child of God. We prayed for her transition into God's heavenly kingdom. We told her that we would miss her, but that her spirit and her legacy would not die. It would live on through us. Those intimate, vulnerable moments, they're hard, they're scary, sometimes awkward and embarrassing. But if I had not anointed Barbara for death, 
I would have missed this glimpse of the kingdom of God. I would have missed this moment where the full extent of Jesus's love is realized here and now. And so I know that there are situations that are hard and messy and scary for you, but I invite you to lean into the intimacy and the vulnerability instead of shying away from it because that is how you will catch a glimpse of the kingdom. That is how you will feel the full extent of Jesus's love. The truth is we as Christians believe we are not only walking one another through the darkness, we are walking one another towards the light. So keep walking, help someone else get there. The fullness of the garden beaming with resurrection light, that garden, it is on the cusp of breaking in. Thanks be to God, amen.